Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Today is February 21st, 2021. Can you tell us what happened in church history on this day in 1974? Yes, that happens to be the day that I was uh, converted. Um, I didn't remember and never made a point of just, you know, trying to find out what the exact day was, but um, uh, it recently came to my attention through your uh, probing that uh, February the 21st was the day that I'd become, or at least I'd made a formal commitment to become a Christian. Because I have come to believe that regeneration precedes faith, then my regeneration almost definitely preceded that by how long, I have no idea. But that is the day that I recall very vividly uh, becoming a Christian. That's wonderful. And would you mind telling us more about your your childhood and your life before you were saved? Yes, I was born in England and uh, in Birmingham. My father had uh, grown up in Iraq. He's Kurdish, born in Kirkuk. And it, after the uh, Second uh, World War ended, because uh, Iraq was under British uh, suzerainty, uh, it had been so since the uh, First World War and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and France and England had divided up the Middle East. Um, uh, Iraq had this kind of relationship with uh, England. So there were a number of students who came to study uh, from Iraq uh, to uh, in England, and my father was one of them. He came in uh, sometime in probably 47, 48, maybe, maybe 49, um, and uh, uh, came to Birmingham uh, to study electrical engineering. Uh, that's where he met my mother. My mother is Irish, born, uh, was Irish, born outside of Dublin in a little coastal seaside town called Bray. And uh, she had come over when she was around 16. So that would have been 1949. So my dad would have met her 50, 51. And um, uh, she had come to live with her aunt, uh, Margaret Maloney, and uh, to work at Cadbury's Chocolate Factory, which is, uh, was in Bourneville, uh, just adjacent to Birmingham. And uh, they met at a dance and were subsequently married. My grandfather, whose name was Paddy O'Gorman, was a bricklayer in Dublin in uh, the the Bray area, and Dublin, and he was he was opposed to the marriage because my father was not a Roman Catholic. In fact, unbeknownst to myself, um, my father was raised a Muslim uh, in his early years, and I had no idea of that until I was in my late twenties. Um, but he embraced uh, Roman Catholicism uh, so as to marry my mother, and so they were married in. 53, and I was born at the close of that year. They were married in the early part of the year, and I was born at the close of uh, uh, 53. And so I was raised Roman Catholic. Uh, we lived in Birmingham for a few years. My father 
uh, taught at Lancaster College after graduating from Birmingham University with a PhD in electrical engineering. And then uh, he got a position at Warwick University just outside Cam Coventry. So we moved to Coventry. Um, that's where I have most of my memories. Uh, we lived in an area of Coventry called Stivechall and uh, had started a, um, a public school, which in Britain is a private school, a grammar school called King Henry VIII, which was founded in the days of King Henry VIII. But in the middle of that, my father um, had made the decision to move to Canada. He had found a a position uh, at the uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, and um, he moved in. We moved in the um, very, very tail end of 1965, so it would be in December of 65, and um, uh, landed in Ancaster. Uh, we rented a house on Lovers Lane in Ancaster for about nine months. Uh, another faculty member from McMaster kind of traded houses or something like that. And uh, we stayed there for about nine months, bought a house. I began Ancaster High and Vocational School. Um, it was a very traumatic experience. Um, I was only 11 or 12 when we moved. And so that's not a good age to move at all. And then my father misunderstood the educational system in Ontario. And he took me to the high school told them that I had started uh, Latin, French. They told me, to, they, they put me in grade nine. So I'm in grade nine. Uh, and these were the days when they still fail people. And I was in a nine E. And the the streams, A, B, C, D, E, were uh, predicated on the, the, the type of um, electives the students took. So nine A was, um, you know, music electives and art and so on. And 9E was all the guys who had failed grade nine two or three times. And they were all what we used to call the tech boys. They were all taking technical subjects. Most of these characters, in those days you could do it, you could go to grade 10 and leave school at that. So most of these characters were kind of left school at grade 10. And I can remember their names very vividly. Um, so I'm a 12 year old. These guys are, some of these guys are 15, 16, uh, boozing on the weekend, uh, going out with girls. I'm going home to play with G.I. Joe. And it was just a horrific experience emotionally, um, deeply traumatic and um, filled with a degree of racism too, because my, my, my surname was still my birth name, which is Hakim. And, um, um, was called a variety of epithets, uh, even the N-word for a whole year in, in grade 10. And um, looking back now, I, I think that, that, again, I see God's hand in that. It gave me a hatred of racism in any way, shape, or form. But at the time, obviously, it was just emotionally traumatic. And it was probably not until grade 11 that I began to find my feet, so to speak. By that point in time, most of my friends were grade nines. So because they're two years young, I mean, I was, I was 14 in grade 11. And so the grade nines were my age. And um, I, I think in reaction to the trauma of being taken from England to Canada, 
and I hated Canada. And um, I couldn't stand uh, just the culture or the the lack of history, which I perceived. And I I ended up reacting in becoming really committed to kind of a radical Marxism because I I just want to burn the whole thing down. I I was part of a very angry generation, and I think what I was doing was I was taking some of the anger I felt against my father. Um, into the political realm. Of course, it was heavily politicized. By the time I was 14 or 15, I was pretty strongly politicized. The Vietnam War was in full swing. Um, I was completely against the Vietnam War, regarded America as a, an imperialist fascist nation. Um, was your hardcore Che Guevara, Mousy Tongue style Marxist. And, um, but it's one thing be all that in the home of the comfortable home of my parents. It's another when you're suddenly out in the world by yourself. And when I was 17, um, I finished high school um, when I was 16, but there was no way I wanted to go to university and repeat the sort of trauma I'd had at the beginning of high school. So I repeated grade 13. So I graduated when I was 17 in 1970. Um, and 70 at uh, 70 and went to uh, the UWO, University of Western Ontario. And um, um, it would be 71. It was 71 because I repeated, I repeated high school that 70, 71. And I was 17 when I went to UWO. I was by myself. I was living with a very elderly couple who um, were always talking about their friends who were dying. And I began to really think for the first time about mortality and human finitude. Um, and I began to realize that Marxism really doesn't have much of an answer. But I remember sitting down, and I, I know exactly the place. Um, it was a street off Richmond Street in London where I was renting and um, sitting down to write a proof for the non-existence of God. And literally, before I could put pen to paper, I knew that, that God existed. And it was one of these epiphanies that really kind of has marked my, that, that changed my entire life. Uh, it terrified me. I, in fact, I ran out of the house and went for a long walk. Um, it was a difficult year. I didn't have many friends at, uh, at um, UWO. Most of my friends had gone to U of T or Queens, and um, but it was there that I I did I began to do um, a BA in philosophy. Um, the following year, I had relocated to the University of Toronto. Lived with two friends, my closest friends in high school. Uh, by the end of the year, we I was they were not on talking terms with me, nor I with them. We lived in a one bedroom apartment, and. Um, I used to spend all my money on books, and uh, so my parents used to give me a little small allowance every week, and I'd, I'd have enough money to buy one or two good meals, and then because I'd buy buying books, and I lived on, you know, uh, corn, you know, frozen corn, and uh, you know, I really didn't eat that well that year, but um, uh, it was uh, it was a difficult year in some ways, and. Um, by the end of that year, uh, as I said, I was back on my own, again experiencing tr trauma 
emotional trauma, but not really having friends. Um, and it was in the summer of 1973, um, after having completed two years of a BA in philosophy, that I started working at a pizza parlor in Hamilton, Westdale, Hamilton, called Mother's Pizza. And um, there was a young woman that was hired that summer, and I've always been attracted to red hair. My mother had red hair, and she had this young woman had red hair. And so that really attracted me right from the get-go. And uh, she was the cashier. I was a pizza maker, and we used to do these long shifts, Friday, Saturday night in the summer. And uh, we would have four ovens of pizzas. It was just, um, it was fa really fabulous. You'd lose about five pounds each, each weekend because every time you open that oven, you got about 200 degrees coming out. And we would sell probably six to 700 pies between five and two in the morning. And I, my, this young woman would work that shift with me. She was right there because she was the cashier. The pizzas, the pizza ovens were right next door to the where the cashier was. And um, uh, I soon found out she was a Christian. And I was raised Catholic. And I thought, you know, I, she went to church. And I, I, thought, I really got to clean my life up. Um, I could go into some detail about how, looking back now, God stopped me drinking. Uh, most of most of my fr well, nearly all my friends were hardcore drinkers, which I was during my teen years, and pretty well most of my all of my friends were acid heads, marijuana, acid. One of my friends was a heroin, had become a heroin addict. I'm thankful I never did anything harder than marijuana or hashish. Um, but I had a number of experiences that just weaned me off of that. And uh, because if I'd met this young woman, because she was a Christian, I, I don't think she would have had anything to do with me if I'd been still drinking as I had been and smoking. And I'd given up drinking and smoking and marijuana and that had dropped by the wayside. But I still felt I needed to clean my life up. And so I asked her if I could go to church. And uh, she and her family um, were had this very disturbing habit of sitting right in the front row. Uh, I, I, even today, if I'm not involved in a church service, I tend to gravitate towards the back. Whereas my this, this woman became my wife, Allison. Uh, she will. She always wants to go right to the front, sit right in the front row. And so I was squished between Allison and her mother on one side and her two brothers on the other, right in the front, under the nose of the preacher, almost. Uh, actually, it was, it was right in the front, but on the right-hand side of Stanley Avenue Baptist Church, there's three rows of pews. And it would be the second or third pew back. And... Um, I heard the gospel for the first time really in my life. I'd had uh, two friends who'd become Christians, a young guy named uh, Doug McMillan, who I just looked up to enormously in high school, and then another friend named Bill Trues, who today is a Roman Catholic priest. But um, I, uh, I really hadn't heard the gospel. And um, during my last year of of, uh, of my BA, I, when I was living alone in Toronto, I'd begun to read Martin Heidegger, the German existentialist philosopher. And Heidegger, Heidegger emphasizes that to 
enjoy authentic existence, you must always put in, put in place before your eyes your death. And this rekindled all the fears that I had experienced in London. But what I heard in the fall of 1973 was the gospel that declared that the one, there was one who had triumphed over death, namely Jesus Christ. And um, the, um, all of this came to a culmination in February of 74. Um, on the particular Sunday, it must have been then the th second or third Sunday, I think it must be the third Sunday in February, uh, whatever Sunday was before that uh, 21st, so it would have been the second maybe. Um, they, uh, we had a preacher named Elwyn Davies, who was obviously Welsh in background, but just a remarkable preacher. He worked for, um, I think a holiness mission or some sort of mission group. And he gave a sermon at the end of which he gave an, uh, an invitation, an altar call. And about within the space of a minute, maybe 35, 40 people had come to the front to profess faith in Christ. And um, I have my issues with the altar call as a praxis. Um, I'm not as opposed to it as I once was. Um, I think it can be overplayed. I think it can play on people's emotions. But on this occasion, I, I don't doubt the reality of what was taking place. I found myself going forward. Um, I don't know if that was the moment of regeneration. I don't think so. I think if I look at what I wrote in those years, those months, I think that I had actually become a Christian. I'd crossed that line probably two or three months before, maybe. I don't know. Um, but the formal commitment came that Thursday, which was the 21st. And uh, I'd gone back to Toronto. I was studying. And I remember waking up on the Tuesday night absolutely terrified and dis determined I was going to pack it all in and, and come home to Hamilton and be a pizza maker the rest of my life. And the same happened on the Wednesday night and the Thursday night again. But this time was different because this time I formally found myself, I actually found myself formally committing my life to Christ on my knees. And I see that as my conversion. As I said, I faith and regeneration are separate events. And that might be in the moment of regeneration. I don't know. But um, that was the moment of my conversion. Praise God for his abundant uh, mercy and praise God for the, the hound of heaven who sought you and, and, uh, and opened your eyes. And Amen. Looking back upon the 47 years that you have been a Christian, if you could give advice to your newly converted self, what would it be? Yes, that's a, that's a very, very good question. Uh, looking back, there's probably very little that I would do differently. I mean, I've been very fortunate in that I had some very, very good mentors. And um, theologically found myself in the Baptist camp within seven or eight years of my conversion. Um, and that's, again, something I don't regret. Shortly after my conversion, I was involved for a number of years in the charismatic movement. And again, I see God's hand in that because it gave me a deep interest in the work of the Holy Spirit and pneumatology, which a lot of Baptists in the 20th century haven't had. 
my pastor under who is preaching I had come to Christ uh, Bruce Woods at Stanley Avenue Baptist Church had advised me to go to stand uh, to go to Wycliffe College which was an absolutely fabulous um, advice because if I'd gone to the school where I ended up teaching after the end of my PhD studies uh, namely uh, Central Baptist Seminary I don't think I would have made it uh, there would have been problems going on to a doctorate from that school because they didn't have the sort of sta- accreditation at the time. And um, I, I really wrestled with being a Baptist. And I needed, I needed the sort of structure that the evangelical Anglicanism of Wycliffe College gave me. And I also needed the grounding in classical uh, Christology and Orthodox Trini- Trinitarianism that Wycliffe College gave me. Um, it was also there that I met the man who became my Dr. Vata, the doctoral supervisor, um, uh, John Egan, who was a Jesuit, uh, just absolutely brilliant scholar in terms of patristic material. That was also very, very important for me. Um, so I don't think any of those sorts of decisions I would have made differently. Um, there are things I would have done differently in raising my children. But, um, and I think the advice, if there was one piece of advice, I think I would have, I probably would have encouraged me to lighten up a little. Um, if there was an area um, in which I did make some mistakes, it was, it was, uh, sometimes putting more emphasis on things that were we, we would call today adiaphora. And so very early on, in the early 80s, um, a very close friendship was destroyed over, today, over uh, the, it was the gifts of the Spirit. But I think I would have done things differently today. I would have been more, I would. I rushed in to some degree like a bull in a china shop when I realized I disagreed with this dear brother, um, and um, I know that there were other things going on because that individual stopped going to church. Um, I don't think it was because of our the end of our friendship, but I think there were other things there. So I'm not sure that there is much I would have. I would. I think I probably would have advised to to be more cautious about um, making huge issues out of things that didn't merit the amount of energy and time that maybe I put into them. Um, I think that's a danger of young men. Uh, they're zealous, which is good, but they're sometimes zealous for absolutely everything, and they they can't. They can't evaluate that there is, they can't see that there are some things that they just have to be more relaxed about and allow brothers who differ with them or sisters who differ with them to come to their own convictions on those issues in time. Who has been the most uh, impactful people in your life? Well, most impactful person, if you want to talk about one person uh, who is simply human, that is not the Lord Jesus. Um, it obviously would be my wife. Um, I've been very, my wife has been an enormous strength to me. Um, I mean, what, the one thing I've wrestled with 
uh, over my years in terms of my Christian walk is fear. Uh, not fear of man, but just fear, sometimes a nameless fear. Um, I look back now and I realize that probably in my 20s, I experienced panic attacks. And I can think of a number of occasions where my wife was just a rock of strength. I remember one time being invited to go and preach in Sudbury by uh, Bob Penhero, who was pastoring, I don't think it was First Baptist. It was a church that uh, J.R. Boyd had established, Berean Baptist. Berean Baptist, that is it. And um, I was taking a train because it was the middle of winter, so I wasn't going to drive. And uh, taking a train, and I got to Union Station, and I just got absolutely overwhelmed with fear. And I phoned my wife. No cell phones in those days. You had to use the, the uh, phone in a phone booth. And I said, I, I'm just coming home. And she said to me, absolutely not, Michael. You're going. And um, she just has been a strength to me in many, many ways. And very wise. Um, she has um, a lot of wisdom about people. I remember on at least two occasions, she told me to have nothing to do with a certain individual. And I didn't listen to her. Uh, I thought, you know, I think you're wrong. And uh, she was dead right. Absolutely dead right. She met, she met one individual. First time she met him, she said, I have nothing to do with that man. And I didn't listen to her. And thankfully, he was a publisher. Thankfully, it didn't get me into all kinds of problems. But it could have. It really could have. And... Um, so the, the most Im impactful person has undoubtedly been my wife. Um, other is, uh, I've been blessed to have probably half a dozen very, very good friends um, over the years. Some of them have be were former students who've become such. Um, I had some very, very good mentors in my life. Um, John Egan would be one. Um, uh, people who impacted me at Wycliffe College, uh, Richard Longnecker, who was New Testament professor. I think what I learned most from him was just how to agree, how to disagree with people Christianly, uh, graciously. Um, Oliver Donovan was uh, there at the time as well. He was very helpful in my final year when I was trying to find a position. Uh, Reg Stackhouse, who was the principal, was enormously influential. Uh, there were others from uh, a distance. Uh, these are scholars like um, Yaroslav Pelikan, a patristic scholar, um, Jeffrey Nuttall, uh, David Bevington, um, who helped, helped me as a historian. And then when I first began teaching at Central Baptist Seminary, uh, Ted Barton was uh, the academic dean and really acting president, and he was a tremendous help. He really kind of shielded me a lot from a lot of the politics that were going on at the time. Um, so in my early Christian walk, uh, I did have a number of very helpful guides. Uh, Bob Holmes, who pastored in the fellowship for many years, was a uh, man I, I really looked up to uh, as, a, as a pastor, as a, as a statesman. Um, and then obviously brothers and sisters who have passed from this world many, many years ago, 
you know, coming beginning with people like Basil of Caesarea, Augustine, um, and probably the most significant of these figures would be Andrew Fuller. Um, I've spent a long time reflecting on his writings, uh, Samuel Pierce, um, and these sorts of uh, Christian figures in church history. Well, that ends part one of my interview with Dr. Haken. In a couple of weeks, we will continue this conversation and talk more specifically about uh, Dr. Haken's ministry as a historian. And, um, and we'll ask some, some questions uh, from Twitter and some, some questions that I'm curious about. So stay tuned and in a couple of weeks, um, listen in. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.